So Casey, how'd you do on the uh, watch ordering or not ordering? Did you manage to resist ordering a watch? Right. So we should start with follow up. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, no, I honestly did not order a watch. I really, truly did not. Uh, it is very much on brand for me to have ordered a watch, but I did not. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's sitting here now. I'm not feeling enough FOMO yet, which is a very unusual occurrence for me. Uh, I'm sure the FOMO will come. A title, but, um, <laughs> but I don't sitting here now. I'm okay, and I was actually talking to my friend Steve about this, uh, and he was saying that he's looking for. <laughs> I love the idea of you having like therapy to cope with your FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I was talking to him because I I wasn't sure if he and his wife had ordered watches or not, and um, and so I was talking to him about what his plans were, and he had said, you know. I don't really like any of the colors of the aluminum that much. And that's kind of put me at this impasse where I don't really know what to do. And I was thinking about it. And I, again, I haven't done like deep research on the color profiles or anything like that on, on these new watches, particularly the aluminum, but well, you couldn't until ordering. T- that's true. <laughs> there that's was no, true. there were no pages up that would tell you what combinations there were, how much they would cost. Like there was nothing. <laughs> yeah. It was so weird so, the way they did it. It was. It seems like a really fairly bungled rollout, but nevertheless, um, I I am not overwhelmed in, in in a bad sense. You know, I'm not really overwhelmed by any of these colors, and I'm not a fancy lad that wants one of the fancy watches. I'm not saying that's wrong for anyone else. It's just not for me. So because of that, I just and and there was nothing compelling that I felt like I needed to have. So no, I didn't order a watch yet. I am not closing the door on it <laughs> happening sometime between now and the next watch. But uh, sitting here now, I have no plans <laughs> to order one. But you're going to be lined up at the Apple Store at ten in the morning on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. That's true. I, that is a fair point. I, I kind of thought of it as like, well, it's all over and done with. But you're right. I suppose I could go on Friday morning and see see how my luck holds out. But I uh, know. How'd you do? Did you order four watches? Ten? One? Um, only only two. Oh, and okay. I, I, I feel good about neither of them. But so first of all, I I do think it is it is interesting what they did with the aluminum colors this year. The way they introduced starlight to replace silver. I don't know if Starlight's going to end up looking silver in real life, um, but one thing I, I can definitely say that that is a like the way it looks on the website does not look like a silver replacement. It looks like a, a separate color. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, in person, it's probably going to be more subtle than that. So you know, maybe in person it'll just be like, oh, it's just like silver. And anecdotally, by far the most common Apple watches I see being worn by people out in the world are black by a long shot. Oh, no way. No way. It is absolutely this bog standard silver or aluminum or whatever. I see silver more in women than men. Um, but men, it's like overwhelmingly black and women. It's like half and half maybe like it, but it's really black is by far the most common color I see on people. And it's always aluminum. That is bananas to me now i have to pay more attention maybe you're right and i just haven't paid close enough attention but my my gut which is you know super scientific tells me that it's <laughs> it's almost entirely silver watches with anything other than silver being a very rare occurrence um at all so maybe it's a different area you know maybe it's something about new york versus virginia i don't know but uh, but long island versus fire island <laughs> no comment if i if i were to guess i would say almost everything's aluminum and like 10 percent of them are black or you know and maybe like two percent are are other colors john what do, do you pay attention or which one of us is crazy? Yeah, I was, uh, my experience matches yours. I mostly see the regular 
standard silver as the most common one. Although I do have to admit that I'm probably looking at people's watches a lot less than Marco is <laughs> just <laughs> because I really have no interest in watches. But yeah, if I had to guess what the most standard one is silver. And I do, I, I'm looking at the website when you're mentioning the, the starlight thing. I'm going to guess that in real life, you're going to have a real difficult time telling starlight from silver without having them literally next to each other. I hope so, because it does seem like that is a very popular color. And it, to to have a generation where you just can't get that anymore would seem odd. Um, but anyway, you're probably right. Um, so I looked at the colors. Oh, and just also anecdotally, I, I will sometimes see black stainless steel on like higher end um, models. But oh, I, I don't think I've ever seen silver stainless steel besides on my own wrist, which is the one I always get. I don't think I've ever seen anybody else wearing that outside of an Apple conference. And even then, it's not common. No snark. How can you tell the difference? Like just looking at the the stainless steel versus the aluminum, I don't think I would know. You can tell it's it's highly polished versus being matte. It's like it's shiny versus matte. It, so it's not even it's not even close. Uh, so like and that's and it scratches like hell because it is very polished. But but it is uh, it is a high polished finish, and so it's like it's like a looking in a curved mirror as opposed to you know the silver looks like an iPhone. Um, so it's it's a very very different finish. Um, but th- the reason I like the stainless steel, first of all. I, I just, I like it because it's shiny. I can't, I'm not going to candy coat that. It is shiny and I like it. Um, but also I find that I like Apple Watch color schemes that have a lot of contrast between the black top screen crystal and the case color. So the case color should ideally be like bright or light in some way for my preferences. That's why a few years back I bought the white ceramic one. If they still made white ceramic today, now that I'm wearing it like every single day, I would probably have bought that this year because I love just that high contrast look. I don't like when it looks like just one continuous blob where it's just like black watch with black crystal like that. I don't I don't, I don't love that, uh, but that is a very popular look anyway. So this time I went with um, stainless steel. Uh, but that being said, literally later that day when I was I, I was running some errands on the mainland that day. And literally later that day, I happened to be in an Apple store picking up some 30-pin dock cables for reasons I'll get to some other time. What? And, which they still sell. Uh, yeah, so I was in an Apple store, and I I happened to see the titanium in the case, and I thought, oh, that actually looks pretty nice. So I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I'm probably going to stick with the steel, because what I've always had. And the only reason, I, I'm telling you, I, I'm not super excited about this generation. The only reason I'm getting it is because the reviews and some more of the photos and videos that are coming out of it are confirming my suspicions that developers of watch apps who are concerned about their design should probably have one of these screens because it does seem like there you know there are there's like new layout guides as I mentioned last week um, that that you can like align text to and everything but text isn't the only thing on my screens and I, I, I have a lot of controls on the screen and I also Work on a couple of complications for various things. So I just, I kind of want, I, I need to have one of these screens. And so I, I, I can't just pass up this whole generation. And I could get like a cheap watch and, you know, have like a, a cheap testing watch. Well, cheap, it's all relative. Have a less expensive testing watch um, and then have, uh, keep my stainless steel Series 6. But I, I just, I have so many devices. I don't want to like have extras. So that's, that's, that's what, that was my thinking there. So, I'm just going to replace my Series 6 with a Series 7 in either steel or titanium, whichever one ends up working best for me. And uh, that'll be it this year. And I'm, I don't feel good about having spent this much money on 
something that's not a huge upgrade, but but here we are. I did start sleep tracking, but that's I don't that's going to be probably temporary. Hmm. Can you unpack this thirty pin adventure, or are you going to just tease us and then walk away from it some other time? <sighs> You're the worst. All right, let's just move on to some follow-up. Now, this is going to be eating at me the rest of the show. Thank you for that. No one asked me if I order any watches. No one cares about my watches. You didn't order a watch, except maybe for Tina. Yeah. <laughs> I, I used my. I finally used my DTK discount successfully, oh, as far as I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty cheap uh, once you take 500 bucks off. She got the gold stainless, because that's what her current one is, and she likes that. Cool. I'm sorry, John. Genuinely. And she did with the dark cherry leather something or other. That's what she picked as her band choice. Not that there were many choices, but that's the one. I I genuinely dropped the ball on that, John. I'm sorry. Um, That's all right. I should have asked you that. Uh, And the shipping dates were bad. So it's like not coming until like mid-November or end of November. Who knows what? Yeah, it seemed like I was able my my steel one I got for day one, which I was I was surprised. I mean, I, I was you know hitting refresh over and over again. Like you know, I was there at minute one, but I was surprised that steel was available still on day one because that never happens usually. Yeah, and par- part of the time barrier was like, like you said, Marco, which one do you want and which style? I don't know what it's available. Right, uh, you don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and so we had to spend precious minutes. Like she had to spend precious minutes deciding. And I, I really emphasize, like, make sure you decide because I don't want, like, I can't easily like undo the order with the DDK thing. And I don't want to have to go through that again. So just really decide this is the combination you want. And even then, it was like because she was at work at that point. I was going through the things, and she's like, I was like, you want the small size, right? Yep. This is what you want. The material. This is the strap size, right? Uh, did you know, by the way, that there is a strap? choice do you take the small medium or the medium <laughs> large uh, i don't know go check my existing straps so oh, they look like small medium right apple care plus or not apple care plus pay all at once or pay monthly it's a surprising number of options when you're not the one ordering it and you know but anyway we got through it and in theory a watch is coming someday there a dutch watchdog has found that apple's app store payment rules are anti-competitive so this is kind of in the same spirit as what was going on or what is going on in Japan, amongst other places. And the Dutch Antitrust Authority has found that Apple's rules requiring software developers to use its in-app payment system are anti-competitive and ordered it to make changes. Whoopsie dipsy. Yeah, we'll see where this goes. I mean, there's been a lot of challenges. I mean, like every country's doing it now. There's a lot of peer pressure. <laughs> it's like, oh, Japan's doing it. The U.S. is doing something. Yeah, everyone is. Anyway, it's it's. it's I, we've talked about this many times, but this is not what Apple wants. A bunch of individual countries coming up with their own set of rules. It's a, kind of a mess. Yeah, I mean, this this is why, like, you know, when for Apple to continue to invite regulation and court decisions and things like that from governments by their, you know, most egregious anti-competitive behavior, I think is a strategic mistake because if you're going to, you know, really, if you're going to do things that are so egregious that governments will find the you know need to regulate you they're not all going to do things the same way they're not going to make the same decisions and it's going to be bad for apple in the long run and probably bad for apple's users as well because if it's going to be this weird fragmented system where certain things are allowed some places certain things not in other places you know there's gonna it's 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 not a good place to be apple's strategy so far has seemed to be well we can pretty much do whatever we want so we will and shut up but that's <laughs> That's not really going to hold for much longer. It, it already isn't, um, and so you know they're they're just going to slowly lose control uh, over their own platform in some small and some big ways because they refuse to yield at all, and and so people will yield for them. 
Yeah, it amused me, by the way, that if you read this short article, that the complaint was from the people who make Tinder match group, which I don't know, it just struck me kind of funny. Um, there's enough smoke here that there's definitely a fire brewing. And I really think Apple is going to need to act on this. If I were to wager a guess sometime in the next six months, because the, 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 this whole this whole thing is really getting away from them in in a very bad way, and and Apple does not want all these governments, like you guys said, to dictate the rules for them. They're going to want to get ahead of this and get everyone to, to just shh, 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 shh. it's okay, we've got this, yeah. it's okay, and and so I really think that that time is coming. Moving right along, Microsoft Store is going to allow third-party app stores. This is a little confusing for me to parse, par- partially because I haven't used Windows in a long, long time. But if I understand things correctly, in the Microsoft App Store, you can then, from within that, download or will be able to download the Amazon and or Epic Games stores, if I, if I get that right. And then from within there, you can obviously like buy and install software. But uh, yeah, they're being a lot more... Uh, a lot more forgiving, which would be nice. Well, when you're the third place app, the distant third place app store, <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of things you love. And Microsoft, you know, this is more blood in the water. It's like, we'll do what Apple and Google won't do. We'll let you have your own store within our store. Hey, why not? We just want people to buy things from the Microsoft store. Um, and it's not that weird. Like if you think about it in the, in, like in the pre-app store world where we didn't have these single company controlled places where everyone got all their apps, uh, if you got a Mac, you could go download Steam, and Steam itself was its own little store. Now imagine, instead of just downloading Steam, you got Steam itself from a store, because it's basically the equivalent of just downloading it from Valve. It's, you know, it's not a thing that people are unfamiliar with. Like, the advent of Steam and sort of like these storefronts for vending, in this case specifically games, is something that people can't, became accustomed to and is its own problem. Like, Steam wields its own power over the gaming industry in a strange way or whatever. This is just sort of a, you know... What do you call those nesting dolls, Matryoshka dolls, whatever? Yep, that's right. That's only the pirated dolls. That's the yeah. What is? <laughs> I, I'm so old. I can't remember the. Um, uh, it's Yo Dog, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Yes. I was. I couldn't decide whether it was Hey Dog or Yo Dog. So yeah. Yo Dog. Um, so <laughs> app stores themselves are are problematic for reasons that we have discussed at length in this program. Uh, gaming app stores uh, like Epic Game Store and Steam are also problematic, and you can and if you nest one inside the other, I think they multiply. I'll have to consult my mathematics uh, textbook to find out how you if you multiply the probabilities or do they get raised to the power of. But anyway, um, this this type of thing where Apple is and other game stores like Google, not game stores, other app stores like Google and Apple, uh, they're sort of silently agreed upon practices are coming under the eye of various governments and there's microsoft saying we have a thing uh, a store too and we're nicer than those guys look what we allow but i just wanted to underscore that beneath all of that is like well okay so you're allowing this in your store but then within steam and an epic game store is itself a reaction to steam flexing its power when steam was like the biggest and baddest game in town epic was like we're not like steam we're the good game store but you know, anyway every every one of these game stores just wants to be where apple and google are so don't forget that as you download your store from your store it also kind of sucks like as a user like i mean I'm not a Windows power user enough these days to care to actually fix this, but every single time I boot up my comp- my gaming PC, I have to dismiss like four different stores login screens. Oh, here's Steam, now here's GOG, now here's the whatever the Razer thing is. Oh, Microsoft has some updates for me. It's like there's so much crap now. It's like, and I don't even I mean, 
we're, we aren't even necessarily free from this on the Mac, you know, in smaller ways. Like I have my Adobe updater running in the background. Now I have my mm-hmm. Isotope updater running in the background. It's like, oh, come on. Like I, I just, I hate having to first get a store for my store and then I get the downloader from my store for my store and then the downloader gives me my app from my store for my store. And it's like, oh my God, just let me buy the app and download the app directly. Like, for God's sake, like make this, make this easier. And, you know, it, this is one, one of the many reasons why I, I kind of hope we don't enter that world on iOS because we can see on the PC like how how kind of mediocre and annoying that world becomes. I mean, the flip side of that is what everyone on the PC would say. It's like, yeah, but if I want a game on PC, I can go get it wherever it is. And there is like the war between, you know, Epic and Steam of like trying to get the game developers to sell there and Epic will take a smaller cut, but then they want the exclusives and Steam is flexing its power to take more from game developers than game developers think is worthwhile. And then it's the question of who gets promoted and all that other stuff. But as a user, if you're on a PC and you want to play what we call a PC game, you can get it. Whereas if you're on the Mac, you're like, oh, well, if you're on the M1, you know, sorry, Steam hasn't, none of the games have come over to ARM and 32-bit, uh, deprecating 32-bit killed a bunch of games too. And, you know, can you even get that game store in your thing? Like it's, it's, you get both. You get the freedom to choose from all these different stores. But if you really do, it sounds like in your case, actually want something from GOG and something from Steam and something from Epic. Now you've got these three storefronts on your computer. And in general, the way they work is like, you can't, as far as I know, maybe someone who's an expert who knows better, I don't think you can delete Steam and still play games from Steam, right? So if you get a game from Steam, you say, okay, well, now I'll just uninstall Steam because I've got the game. I don't think that's going to go the way you think it's going to go. Uh, and so, of course, they also want to auto-update. And obviously, the being thrown the login screens and stuff like that, I'm sure it's something that you can go into Windows and, as people are saying in the chat, just disable the, the auto-start items or whatever the equivalent of login items is on Windows not to be bothered by them. Um, but yeah, it's the, that's the price of access to all the things is all the things have access to you too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, and I don't, you know, having some kind of, you know, what is, what in mobile is called sideloading and what on computers is just called downloading apps. Like that is fine on, in the computer world. Again, I, I think in mobile, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of that prospect, but, um, but in, in the computer world, I'm, I'm fine with being able to download software directly from the vendors. That's great. What I don't like is having increasing amounts of middle people in the way like that sucks. And I and what the industry needs is not more middle people. You know, it it's it's nice to have something that's nicely integrated with the system. You know, we have the App Store, we have the Microsoft whatever store. That's nice for like you know technical convenience sake. But otherwise, I don't want a whole bunch of different app stores that I have to admit that that are all launching and running in the background and running their own DRM schemes and their own auto updater and like it's just it's just a pain and it's burdensome and that's just not that I don't think we're necessarily in a better place like that doesn't make the world better to have four different app stores on Windows like that sucks that it, it, it's better off having just direct downloads well it, it makes it better in some ways I mean, if you think about why Steam became popular, because it was solving a real problem that people had. Do you remember when PC games were all their own individual installers and how how much of a challenge it was to get, say, the three games you want to currently be playing both installed, all three of them installed and working on your Windows PC at the same time? Because they all have their particular requirements. Oh, no, of, that, that wasn't uh, the problem. The problem was all their terrible DRM schemes <laughs> that would install rootkits on your computer. Or which, which drivers they want to work with or how, what their updater is and stuff like that. So Steam came in and said, hey, you don't have to worry about that. You're no longer at the mercy of every single individual game developer's attempt to make an installer and an updater. Steam will handle that, all of that for you. And that's why users flock to it. And then, of course, 
enough users flocked to it that it gave Valve a tremendous amount of power. And that's where these problems all come in. It's like uh, every one of these things that was introduced was solving a real problem for somebody. But eventually, if you become the biggest or the only game in town, it's like you start seeing dollar signs. And now now you start turning the screw on everybody and developers start to not like you. And then you realize, hey, we have game we have game players over a barrel because, of course, you need Steam because if you want to play games on a PC, you need Steam. What are you going to do? Individual installers for every game? Ha ha ha. No one wants to go back to that. So now you start messing with developers and throwing more ads in their face because you show it gets them to buy more stuff. Right. So this stuff does go bad. But in general, it comes from a place of some kind of progress like i remember the first time i used steam i'm like wow this is so much better than dealing with individual games because every game was different and they were all of varying quality and steam sort of was a you know a level playing field from the user's perspective it was one one application one place to deal with all your game stuff um but yeah and then you've got the epic store so now you've got two places and the reason epic story exists is because epic wasn't happy with steam for very good reasons and sometimes users aren't happy with steam so now you've got two and yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the solution is beyond like altruistic things of like, you know what, there should be a standardized way to deal with installs and updates and so on and so forth. And it should be developed and supported by the OS vendor. But why are they motivated to do that? Because if they're going to do a lot, why don't they just make their own app store and then they would have all the power and you get an Apple or a Google type scenario more or less. So, I'm, you know, I, I think I think this is an inevitable series of events, but I think we get there by individual companies doing things that for various for, for various moments in time, users and developers did like, and then it just turns bad, and then we get the reaction to that, and just the wheel turns, whatever the expression might be. That's it. Yep. Yeah, I got it. Nailed it. Casey style. Speaking of <laughs> wheels turning, can we just go back a step? Did you, what was your opinion, John, of MTV's Pimp My Ride? Because I feel like <laughs> you're going to say that you hated it, but I, I'm hoping against hope that you found something delightful within it. Uh, can you tell me how this is connected to anything we've discussed so far? <laughs> Yo, dog. Okay, sure. All right. Um, I don't, <laughs> not sure I watched any entire episode of him. I must have. I must have seen an entire episode once in a while. But no, I mostly know the meme from the internet, you know, connected thing. And its connection to Pimp My Ride, I could not have pulled out of a hat if you hadn't reminded me. Oh, it was so delight. It was trash, but it was so delightful. Uh, did, did you see it, Marco? Of course not. Oh, God. Marco hasn't seen it. Don't you know the meme? It's a car yes, show. Yes, yes. Well, kind of. Uh, uh, allegedly. <laughs> nevertheless. All right. Well, we'll move right along. That's a little disappointing, but that's okay. Uh, I wanted to share a hilarious and delightful story that a listener sent us. Uh, Thomas Q. Brady sent us a link to a blog post that, that they put up uh, with regard to their adventures with a, with a brand new iPhone 13 Pro. Now, it is worth reading the blog post because I thought it was very, very good and very funny, but the extremely short version is that Thomas was tubing with his family and oopsie doopsies, his brand new iPhone 13 pro slips out of his pocket into the water in like a river or some such. Can we, can we pause for a moment and think about the idea of I'm going tubing and I'm going to go and I'm going to keep my phone in my pocket right away. (laughs) Right away. I'm saying maybe this is not the best life choice. Like I know people always want to be with their phone, but when you're going tubing on a river, maybe that's the time to think about not bringing your phone with you. This would have been a more appropriate time for a GoPro, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Nevertheless, uh, Thomas writes, the next morning I took uh, a backup phone to T-Mobile to get a new SIM card. I told the T-Mobile salesperson my tale of woe, and he and his colleagues said, you should talk to that man plus River guy. They told me of a YouTube celebrity that apparently now lives nearby and does scuba diving sessions looking for treasure and or people's lost items. This is like the beginning of a movie. It's like, oh, you got to go down to old man Peabody. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, there should be a monster in the river that eats him or something. <laughs> it's it's so true. But uh, anyway, so uh, long story 
slightly shorter. The Man Plus River guy, uh, whose name is Dallas, goes searching and searching and searching, and eventually his scuba tank runs out of air, and he says, oh, the heck with it, I'll grab my snorkel, and then he goes snorkeling to search and search and search and search. And eventually, he came up with the phone. But what amazed me was, and this is now reading from Thomas's blog post again, the phone was still on. The battery still had 20% charge, probably thanks in part to a shortcut script that automatically enables low power mode when the battery battery falls below a threshold. I'm holding the phone right now. There aren't even any visible scratches. The only quote-unquote defect I could find of any kind between the moment uh, when it was found and now is that the speakers weren't working. I could barely hear anything when I tried to play music or make a phone call. As they've dried out, even those seem to be coming back. The camera lenses, screen buttons, all fine. I took it to T-Mobile to get the eSIM reactivated and told them what had happened, that it had been underwater for 26 hours. <laughs> they looked at the water damage sticker that's apparently visible from the SIM tray door. It's a white sticker that turns pink if it gets wet, and that's how they determine water damage. It was white. So, 26 hours underwater. I wasn't entirely clear on how deep, but 26 hours underwater, and it basically works no problem. And so, Thomas goes into a little bit about uh, the, uh, what's the IP rating? I forget what it stands for. But basically, the, the rating is to how it can protect against ingress of dust and water and stuff like that. Is it ingress protection? I don't know. Yeah, like I, the um, IP 60, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the iPhone 13 Pro is IP68 rated. Six is the maximum amount, which which is, according to Wikipedia, no ingress of dust, complete rete- complete protection against contact, as in, so it is dust tight, so no dust should be able to get in it. And then the eight indicates its water rating. Eight is the second best, which it reads, water can enter, but only in such a manner that it produces no harmful effects. Now, there are limits to how long it can be underwater and so on and so forth. It cannot be blasted by a like powerful jet, which is the most strong rating. But how cool is that? 26 hours underwater, some random, well, not random, he's a very popular YouTuber, but some YouTuber ends up finding it underwater and the thing is still on and working no problem. I just thought that was such a cool story. Yeah, that's pretty great. And uh, I watched the most recent of the Man Plus River uh, YouTube videos. Uh, it, it, is, it is not the video that will presumably eventually go up about Thomas's phone, but it was just a general video about somebody looking for a class ring that was lost in like a lake or something like that. And it was delightful. It was like 15 minutes. And uh, if you have 15 minutes to kill, I recommend it. So you should check that out. If you're going to lose your phone underwater, it's probably a good idea to do it when it's brand new because that's when all the seals presumably are at their best rather than like <laughs> a year later when you accidentally left it on the dashboard of your car sitting in the hot sun and like baked all the rings and the rubber is hardening and things are becoming unseated. So there you go. Moving right along, uh, Sharon Lynn Falk writes uh, with, <laughs> do you want to handle this, John? This was with regard to uh, larvae in uh, what was it like uh, dry pasta? So Sharon writes, any wheat-based product, this is so gross, any wheat-based product can harbor weevil larvae. They will hatch if it gets warm and humid. I learned this living in Florida and turning off the AC when I went up north for three weeks. Now I refrigerate my flour. And Sharon provides a link to pets, pestshero.com where they talk about uh, what bugs are in my pasta and which ones are safe to eat, which was <laughs> super great. I don't think the link was from Sharon, but a lot of people sent in suggestions of different insects. I was trying to find a page of list them all. You've got your grain weevils, your rice weevils, sugar ants, flower beetles. I think someone had some Mediterranean, like European moth thing. You can read this page. And yes, it does cover things such as how do I know if there are weevils in my pasta? What happens if I cook and eat <laughs> pasta with weevils in it? Uh, read the page to find out. Oh, God. How about if there's any doubt, don't. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, that's the good. I mean, it, the thing of pasta is not that expensive. If you don't want to eat bugs, don't. But uh, they're probably fine. Oh my god, I'm 
very disturbed right now. <laughs> All right. Can we move on? Can we move on? Please and thank you. And let's talk about uh, what's going on on Monday. Are you guys doing anything fun? I mean, hopefully. Uh, this is an exciting... <laughs> for, 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 uh, <laughs> for once, the uh, like the announcement, like the, you know, they send a little picture and a word or whatever to like announce the, the event to uh, various people uh, when it's happening. And this one is extremely straightforward, I feel like. The event is called Unleashed with a period, not an exclamation point, Jaws. Uh, and the little animation that accompanies it is like an Apple logo with I, what look like speed lines kind of coming at you. As Todd Vizieri will tell you, this is not a proper Star Wars style hyperspace Starfield thing, but it's clearly inspired by a similar thing. Um, and Jaws, uh, Greg Jawsbiak uh, of Apple, tweeted uh, a little animation uh, with this thing, and the text of his tweet is Unleashed! Exclamation point. The ne- these next six days are going to speed by. So fairly straightforward. No uh, complicated reading here. Apple will announce things that are fast. <laughs> and that's exactly what we expect. And they're going to apparently emphasize the fact that they are fast. And what is unleashed? Hopefully the M1 will be unleashed by adding more of it and putting an X on its name or whatever. Uh, so this is exciting. This is presumably the, the Mac event that we've all been waiting for. We talked a lot about laptops in the last show. Uh, maybe they'll also introduce those AirPods, that, the regular AirPods that don't go in your ear canal that we talked about for the previous event, but that didn't show up, but still are apparently a real thing. Who knows? But all I care about are the Macs. Bring on the Macs. Yes, indeed. Oh, I'm so excited. This is this is actually earlier than I would have guessed this event would be. Um, you know, I was thinking more like maybe end of the month. Uh, so this is... Very promising. I mean, assuming this is most likely the Mac event, which, you know, I think by all means, it certainly looks very likely to be the case. I'm just so looking forward to this. You know, we, we talked last week about the laptop rumors in particular, and we talked in the past shows. It just, I, I really want to see what what is the next step in the M1 or, or the Apple Silicon progress. Like, what? how do we broaden these chips into the higher-end products? You know, I personally have been full-time m1 user for uh almost a year now and i love this this chip and this is the lowest end one like this is the most likely the slowest and worst apple silicon chip that, that will ever be in a mac it's leashed right <laughs> it's not a leash it's totally it's totally leashed well done you want to get rid of that and and in some ways it is like you know I, I you know I've been using 16 gigs of RAM this whole time and I could really use more of that. I talked about you know the I you know, there's only four high speed cores. Uh, I would love more more than you know more than that for the performance cores. I just can cannot wait to see like what is the story here and this might not even be the entire story as we'll talk about next week. You know whatever we get and then whatever we still need to get um you know we're expecting things we're expecting the uh laptops basically the the macbook pro what we don't really hear any rumors about as far as i can tell uh for anything imminent is the mac mini that has more you know like the bigger chip we're not hearing anything about mac pro options like the mini the miniature mac pro that was rumored with well, the, the the mac mini there were a set of uh enhanced mac mini rumors remember the one with the magnetic i don't know if we talked about it on the show but it's like skinnier and has a magnetic power cord just like the new imax does and it would have an m1x in it i don't know if it's rumored for this event but there were a round of rumors about that with the mac pro yeah. as usual there's there's nothing where it's like if the, you know other than they're like oh it's a half size one or something something like that. so the mac pro no one is expecting this event 
I don't think people are expecting the Mini either, but at least there's a solid rumor and renderings and feature set that supposedly is in the new Mini. But yeah, this event, when they say Unleashed, like, I, you know, they've already done with the M1 Max, released the Max that most people buy. <laughs> the M1 MacBook Air, as he says. <laughs> but if you don't know anything about Macs, you just want a Mac, we know you want a laptop because who uses desktops? Which one should you get? The M1 MacBook Air. It's amazing. Just buy it, right? But for the higher end things, for the people who care about their computers being unleashed, the MacBook Pro <laughs> is the computer that, you know, it's like Apple sells two Macs, the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro. And every other Mac is like weird special interest groups like us or have any <laughs> care about it at all, right? And so this is the MacBook Pro event. And that's all they have to do is, is put out those MacBook Pros, hopefully, uh, as described in our previous thing. Everything else, like, oh, I'd like a new Mac Mini. It's like Apple's like, yeah, everyone always wants a new Mac Mini. We'll yeah. do it someday. Right? Well, but, <laughs> you know, you know and, also, I think the large iMac is also a question mark. Yes, know, that, yes. Because that, they do sell a good number of those. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that I think what we need to complete the Apple Silicon picture is the big iMac, the pro laptops, and the pro desktops, whatever that means. And I don't know how much of that we're going to get yet. Um, the if the rumors about like the jade c chop and jade c die thing from a few months back if those end up being correct and looking at what they did with the m1 i would assume that the high-end mac mini the macbook pro and the big imac will all use the same chip whatever the m1x or whatever with the m2x the m plus whatever that's called i'm assuming all three of those product lines use the same processor. And then the only question is whatever the Mac Pro might use, which might be like two or four of those same things or whatever. Yeah, and, and I think it's perfectly fine. Like Kind of like it was fine for the M1 to be used everywhere it is, as we pointed out in past shows. Every machine that has an M1 is happy to have it, and it is appropriate for it, including the iPad. Like It's it's fine. And those things that you listed, the the you know the high-end uh, PowerBook, the iMac, the, the quote-unquote big iMac, and the faster Mac Mini, those can definitely all be well served by with with, with the variability of the GPU cores. Because again, the rumor is you can get one with more GPU cores and less, right? But in general, the CPU is like. And I'll go back to our previous show where we talked about these rumors, right? That one feature set, including the RAM limits, including the rumored RAM limits, can serve all of those machines fine. Because if you if you get a big iMac and you're like, oh, but the big iMac can only hold 64 gigs of RAM, it's like, well, it's not the Mac Pro, and the Mac Pro isn't out yet. But that's fine for the big iMac if it has. 32 gpu cores and the the normal big set of you know cpu cores and maxes out at 64 gigs of ram that feature set is also fine for the macbook pros and the mac mini would love to have i mean i don't know if the mac mini (laughs) will get it or deserves it or whatever you want to say because the mac mini is often neglected but it would fit fine in that machine as well um and and it fits with what we know of apple's rollout which is Let's just try to use the same chip as in, in as many places as we can. And I think I would be happy with that whole thing. But I for this event, I'm actually only expecting the laptops and anything else I get is gravy. Yeah, I, I think the laptops are obviously the most likely. I bet we're gonna get at least one at least either the Mac Mini or the big iMac. And, and probably the Mac Mini. But we'll see. I'd be surprised we got any desktops. I think they are the most likely. I'll be super surprised if we get anything that's not like just straight up computers. You know, I, I'll be surprised if we get AirPods. Personally, I'm hoping for Air, AirPods Pro because I think it's time for me to get a set. And uh, I'm re- I'm waiting and trying to resist up until the time that there's a new version. But um, I don't know. Nevertheless, I... I don't know. I have this, what was it? It's a year old or two year old um, 
13 inch MacBook Pro. What was this? It was 2020, so it's a year old. It was one day before the Apple Silicon transition began. Yeah, basically, that's true. Because I got it for that keynote, didn't I? <laughs> um, so, anyways, I, I I don't have any problem with my laptop, but I I don't and I don't even know why I'm more keen to update this than I am my iMac Pro, but. I really would like to have a new 13-inch MacBook Pro. I know I've said this several times. I really don't want to give up on ports if I can avoid it. Uh, just like a week or two ago, I had all four ports chugging on something. I think I had power, Ethernet, phone, and there was one other thing I was using at the same time. I can't remember what it was now. But I do occasionally use all four ports, and so I would like to keep all of them. And I would like to be able to do stuff in Swift UI in less than a calendar year, which would be super cool. Um, but... Uh, if there was a new iMac Pro, then I'm going to have a real uncomfortable conversation with Aaron about how I'm going to replace my entire computing life in one shot. So we'll see how that goes. But <laughs> I need it for my work. Uh, well, and I can pull that card sometimes, but not always. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know what? Come to think of it, have, have I mentioned recently that you can go to atp.fm slash join if you would like? <laughs> Just going to throw that out there. Um, but no, I, I, I'm, I'm very excited to see what's released uh, next week. I'm, I'm, I think it should be interesting. I I am trying not to get my hopes up that we are going to get the, you know, longtime Apple user apology tour that we're all hoping for with, you know, the SD cards and the HDMI ports and so on and so forth. But, oh man, I, I'm just, I'm excited to see what they do here because I feel like we really know so little and we are going to know so much more so soon. So it is not the longest six days of my life, but I am super excited for it. They're supposed to speed by. They get speed. It's not that they're going to be long. Yeah. yeah so well. I, I have two big fears about this event. One we talked about in the past show, which is like, well, are they really going to do the thing with the laptop? Like, have they really turned a new leaf and, and are on a new strategy, like the rumors say? Or is that just not true? Right. So that's my one fear. For not that I'm into the laptops, but I feel like I hope they've. I hope that rumor is true. And my second fear is very specific. My second fear. I don't. I, again, I haven't been keeping up with the rumors on this, so I don't know if it's founded. Second fear is that they'll max out at 32 gigs, and I'll be super sad because I think that is not appropriate for all these machines. Maxing out at 32 is not good. Well, the the current MacBook Pro, the the current big one, maxes out at 64. Mm-hmm. I I don't think they would re, they would replace the 16 inch with something that has lower maximum RAM specs. I, I really hope that's true, but I'm just like, because we, we have these questions about economically speaking, how much RAM can they shove in the unified memory thing? And we, you know, we did a lot of stuff with the GPUs where I did a bunch of back of the envelope math to show that, you know, GPU power is within shouting distance given the size of the rumored things and so on and so forth. But I don't know what factors are involved in the RAM thing. And th- the fact that the, the, the fact that the M1 is even available with eight bothers me, right? Because I just feel like it's not appropriate. But that makes me think, oh, maybe it's it's really expensive to do that, you know, the unified memory architecture. And there, I have seen a couple of rumors bouncing back and forth over the past months of like, will it be 32 or will it be 64? So those are my two fears. The, the laptop things aren't true and they haven't really turned over a new leaf, which will be sad. Um, or that the high-end, you know, that any of these things, that the laptops, the the iMac, the Mac Mini, the, the, new, the, the new unleashed chip is still leashed to 32 gigs. <laughs> Marco, what would you be most excited to see? Like if, if we really do get the apology tour is, is the SD card that we may or may not be getting the most exciting is the death of the touch bar, the most exciting. Like if you could choose only one, what would you choose that to make you just overjoyed? When the, the current M one 
series of laptops. They they basically swapped in the M1 guts and left pretty much everything else the same. And what that has resulted in is a almost ridiculous surplus of battery life because they replaced the more power-hungry Intel guts with the more efficient M1 guts but didn't change the battery sizes. And so as a result, my MacBook Air has ridiculous battery life and also no fan. <laughs> that's that's awesome. I love that. My fear is that they will or have taken the opportunity now that they have, quote, surplus battery life, um, and maybe they decided to make them thinner, thinner and lighter and shrink those batteries down a bit. I hope they haven't, because having this MacBook Air with its ridiculous battery life has made it so that for the first time ever, I rarely need to think about my laptop's battery life. I can bring it, if I'm like going on an overnight trip somewhere, or even a weekend trip somewhere, I can bring my MacBook Air, have it just in my, in my backpack, occasionally pull it out and use it, and just never have to think about it, and never have to plug it in for like that entire trip. If I left it upstairs you know, for a couple days, I know I can go to it and use it, and it'll be fine. It won't be discharged, or it won't be at like 10%. It's been amazing having a laptop that has battery life that's more like an iPad in that way. You can you can kind of just not think about it for a while. And, and actually, it's honestly better better life than my iPad. <laughs> it's just, it's great. And so I hope whatever they've done with this next generation of laptops that we hope is about to come out, obviously I hope they're good. And I, we went through all last week, all the different things that we hope they, they come with and everything. And that, that all sounds great. But I, I hope they haven't shrunk the batteries by too much. I'm sure they've shrunk them by a little bit. I hope they haven't shrunk them by too much because this is such a great like situation we have now with these laptops where we finally have great battery life for the first time literally ever in a laptop. All of their claims in the past, have they've never panned out to be great battery life in a laptop, ever, ever, ever. They've always been okay, maybe decent. Some of them have been pretty poor. It's never been great. Now it really is. And I hope this wasn't a one-time fluke like during this transition. I hope they actually keep this standard up of having this good a battery life. So that's honestly, that would be like my stretch goal of what I hope to see. That's assuming they haven't, you know, screwed up anything else. But I, I think, you know, when when Apple designed these these this last generation of laptops um, for the 2016 release, and that was a long time ago. That was that was, you know, deep into the unedited Johnny Ive era. Uh, that was, I think, some of their worst products were came out of that era, uh, and this is a very different time. You know, this again, that was 2016 that those came out, so this is significantly later, and hopefully they have learned. And the products they have designed more recently than that have pretty much gone on an upward trend. Like they've been better by a lot, and and so I expect great things here. I don't expect this to be a compromised product line or a controversial one. I expect this to be great and boring. It should be amazing, and it should not have any kind of massive drama. It shouldn't require the bags full of dongles that we've all been carrying. They shouldn't have any kind of massive missteps like the butterfly keyboard or the touch bar. I expect them to be really great laptops that are just normal in, like, once you once you buy them and you're over the newness of it, it should just feel like a great normal laptop. You shouldn't have to think about any xyz part of it that's like stabbing you in the back every time you use it it just should just be a great computer that's what they used to release on a routine basis now i i'm pretty sure i'm confident that they have 
the skills and the direction and the humility in this area to do it right this time. So that's what I'm looking forward to also. I have some confidence that they're not going to mess with the battery too much, if only because they're, I, I mean, with this Unleash thing, I hope they're really putting in enough hardware in there that at maximum tilt, where if everything going off, it will really eat battery, right? And so I think they'll still have great battery life for people who are just tooling around on them or whatever. But if you really want to exercise all the stuff they put in it, I think they're still going to have to put in similarly sized batteries just to handle that you know, the, the aggressive case, maybe not so much on the 14, but certainly on the 16. So I, and, and looking at the rumor renders, who knows how accurate they are. If it's thinner by a millimeter, it's fine. But I feel like, and you mentioned they kept the battery the same size as the MacBook Air. I think they might've increased it a little bit because the, like the, the logic boards shrink a little bit for the, these arm things as well. They were already tiny with the Intel things, but they're even tinier now because everything is shoved into the system on a chip, right? And that makes actually makes a little more room for battery. So who knows how it'll come out. If, if the rumored ports are true, they're going to eat in some space, but then the logic board's going to be smaller, so you get some space back. So I I think also part of the supposed new ethos is not just give people ports they need, but also let's get off of that thin and light thing. And arguably Apple has learned that lesson, even on the laptops a little bit with like the discontinuation of the, the MacBook One uh, and the fact that over the past few years, like the, the new 16-inch uh, MacBook Pro, they didn't lean heavily on even making that thinner. Not that they really could with the Intel chips. But anyway, I you know, this if you if they were going to lean on something to make it thinner, like I feel like that we'll see that in the M2 MacBook Air next year, right? Because that's the machine to do that on. That makes sense. But for the big honking 16-inch that's going to be unleashed, I hope they still stick with essentially the biggest battery they can legally fly on a plane with. <laughs> I forgot about that. Actually, Casey, I do have an answer to your question that's not crappy. What what would be my most like mind-blowing thing is if the 14-inch is fanless. Well, that's interesting. I really don't expect that's that. That's not but... appropriate, <laughs> is it? Do you think that's appropriate for the, the 14-inch MacBook Pro to be fanless? Mm. I don't think they will do it. <laughs> but but I, I would love it if they did. I mean, you just want an M2 MacBook Air. Like, because if you want a fanless, like... I, if it's going to be unleashed, part of the leash is the lack of a fan because you have thermal <laughs> throttling and you can't clock it as high or whatever. Unleashed means you have a fan. So if you don't want a fan in your thing, Apple will have computers you can buy. But I really hope the 14-inch has a fan. A quiet one, but... You know. the, the, current, the, the M1 MacBook Air, which is fanless, and it's the only M1 computer that is fanless, it actually is not that much less performant than the ones with fans in actual use. Like, if, if you look at you know the the actual benchmarks and workload and, and load testing and thermal testing it actually doesn't get that much slower <laughs> than than like you know the mac mini or the, or the 13 inch macbook pro that has it now it doesn't have 32 gpu cores like i feel like the delta between full tilt and idling is going to be way bigger for these things fair enough and also in all fairness you know the mac mini that i've been using as my desktop for most of the last year um it has a fan and i've never heard it and so maybe maybe this is just you know wishful thinking but the MacBook Air that is fanless, what as we mentioned, that's that's an old case design. That design was never made to be fanless. And what they did, what they had to do to make it fanless. So there's these like regulations with safety, like you with laptops in certain countries that the bottom of the laptop that touches your skin in many, in much common use when it's on your lap, uh, it, that can't get above a certain temperature with sustained use, just for like safety and comfort reasons and certain regulatory reasons. And so. The most obvious way, if you were going to cool a laptop down passively and you have this giant metal underside of it, 
the most obvious thing to do to cool it would be to bond the heat generating surface of the processor to that metal surface that because it's like a giant metal heat sink basically as the exterior casing of the laptop but because of those thermal limits for comfort and health and stuff you can't really do that so what they did with the macbook air if you look at the teardowns of it it basically has like an air gap like there is a heat sink inside the laptop that does not touch the exterior of the case it just basically heats up the heat sink and then the air that's in there and you know, but air is an insulator largely thermally. Like it's not a not a great uh, way to cool things passively. So, if they redesigned the case of the laptop, th- I think there are other places they could dissipate heat. Maybe the screen lid. Maybe maybe you know some parts of the top decking that are away from the keyboard. I don't know. But what I'm saying is the M1 MacBook Air, which is fanless, is in an enclosure that was never meant to be fanless. If they design a new enclosure with that from the start as a goal, they could do it differently and they could potentially dissipate much more heat. Again, I don't think they're doing this for the 14-inch. I don't think they would. But I would love it if they did. I mean, again, you just described the M2 MacBook Air rumored. It's going to be a case designed to be fanless from day one. It's going to have higher thermal limits than the current one because it's purpose-built for it. It'll probably also be thinner and lighter. Uh, And the M2, uh, if they crank it up, might even dissipate more heat than the M1 does just because now they have the headroom because they have a better case. But we'll see. There's only so many places you can chuck that. The place I mainly remember the heat going is... uh, especially with like the original like PowerBook G4 and stuff is would be the piece of metal between the function keys and the screen, like the piece of metal on the on the lower part of the case that would get so hot, which it's basically the right place to do it because you tend not to touch there and it's not touching your leg. It's radiating into the air. But man, that thing would get hot. probably even on modern laptops. If you just reach slightly above the keyboard to that metal. Yeah, <laughs> uh, if you're really working your laptop, that'll get warm. I, I, I would love to have First of all, no regressions, because you never know with Apple. Like, modern Apple of the last year or two doesn't seem to want to step backwards like Apple of a few years ago often did. But nevertheless, I would like no regressions. But the other thing I think I would like in the spirit of Unleashed is let's get rid of those limitations that seem silly at a glance, that seem to be holdovers from the M1 seeming to be a largely iOS uh, design or I, a processor built for iOS. And so an example of this is the limit of, of 32 gigs RAM. Or is it th- or no, 16 gigs RAM. I'm sorry. They're currently limited to 16 gigs RAM and in the M1. And and I, it, I believe it's still true that it's only one external display, except maybe the Mac Mini. Is that right? Or did I make no, that No, because you can, like, that's what they say on their specs page, but it's so easy to make, to connect more than one monitor with these various adapters and dongles and stuff, which is not great, but it's not an actual limitation. It's a compromise, it seems, right? That you need to go like USB-C to HDMI and HDMI to a monitor, and then you can go direct USB-C to a different monitor or whatever. Yeah, there are other ways to do it, but it's an, it's more annoying than it should be for sure. Yeah, and so I feel like those seemingly arbitrary limitations or, or the limitations that seem to be because it was born as an iOS chip, I would really love for those to go away. It's not like, I mean, I, I almost never connect my laptop to a monitor. And in fact, if I do, it's usually sidecar. It's not a physical monitor at all. Um, and actually, if I ever do, it's usually a television because I'm using it to like watch a movie, you know, when I'm traveling or something like that. Uh, So it's not something that would really fix a need for me, but it's just in principle something that I think is unfortunate. And, and I haven't lived with 16 gigs RAM in a long time. And I know that it's not, you know, it's not all apples to apples on the M1 Max, but I would really, really 
find it difficult to buy a professional, an allegedly professional computer in 2021, in late 2021, with only 16 gigs RAM. Like, I feel like I would want at least 32, maybe even like John was saying, 64. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think those like seemingly arbitrary limitations is what I would love to see go away. And and in two ports, you know, I'd like to see more than two ports. Again, a seemingly arbitrary limitation that is applicable to the laptops, at least, um, that I would like to see go away. And if they can accomplish that, if this is really a, a chip that is built for desktops, or at least behaves like it, whether or not that's the actual history of it, uh, I think that would make me the most happy. John, do you have any thoughts on this? I know you love laptops so, so much. You know, I think I... I expressed everything I wanted to say last week. I just hope that the that the rumors about the new ethos are true and that these laptops uh, really embody them. Um, in terms of limitations of the system on a chip, there's another thing we mentioned briefly last time and I'll reiterate now. The expectation, and I think it's a reasonable one, is that these are not, like, this is, this is like, it's the stuff from the M1, but more of it, right? So it's not like, oh, it's totally different. Uh, whatever they call it, whatever they end up calling it, don't get distracted by the names. We, but I keep referring to, like, M1X implying it's like, it's M1 guts, but more stuff. And on that end, the idea that they're going to fix weird limitations that were present in the M1 and they'll fix them in these, I'm not sure that we should be expecting that just because... Like this is following. This is what Intel has always done. Like the, the first chips that come out are not the Xeons with like the new cores of the new architecture. It's the smaller and cheaper ones, and they build up to the Xeons. And so that's what Apple's been doing. You, you release the small one with the M1 cores and all that other stuff, and then this one is going to be the big one, but it's going to have the same or similar M1 cores and stuff. And I would imagine the same or similar I/O or whatever whatever it is that's stopping them from doing multiple displays easily. Hopefully that's not something that's inherent in the architecture and hopefully it was just that, you know, they would have added, added needed to add more, you know, lanes to some bus somewhere or something and, and that'll be solved by this one. Um, if this, if the chips in these Unleashed things really are like, oh, all new cores, new, if it's like the A15 cores, for example, or the A15 GPU cores, which as we covered in past shows are actually different as well, I'll be very surprised by that. And what it will do is it will make the M1 seem like this weird stopgap, right? They just had to get something out the door ASAP. And so they gave you the M1, but really they were working on these unleashed ones that essentially have A15 cores in them. I don't expect that. Right now I'm still fully expecting these to be M1, but more, which will be great. M1's a great chip. Um, but I think that kind of dictates the feature set. Whatever stuff that was, if it is M1 guts, whatever stuff they planned on with the M1 guts, you're going to get that, but just more of those guts. So as a final question before we move on, and let's start with John, what is this chip going to be called? Just for bragging rights, if, and assuming there's only one chip, which maybe there won't be, but what are they going to call this chip that they're announcing Monday? I mean, I'm, I haven't, again, have not been keeping up, so I'm just going to go with the boring old M1X. Right? We're, you know, it's, we're already trying to make the shirt for it, so <laughs> <laughs> please let it be called M1X because it'll save us a little bit of work. But yeah, Apple can call it whatever the hell they want, but M1X is what I'm thinking of it as in my mind for the reasons I just stated that I expected to do the M1, but extra. Marco? I'm also going M1X uh, because, you know, we talked about this before. Um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, maybe this should be the M2, the M3. But I think that's, that's what future years chip lines will be. Uh, I don't think the, you know, m bigger core version of the M1 will be called the M2. I think the M2 is next year's chips or, you know, it's like it, the chips that come out next spring that are based on the A15 or whatever. Um, I mean, and it, it's possible you know, one thing that we haven't talked about, it is possible that they might skip M1X and these new chips might 
be M2 based in their naming because maybe the new chips will use A15 cores instead of the A14 cores that are in or you know the A14 based cores that are in the M1. Um, so it's possible that you know this might that like M1X might never exist and that maybe the M2 goes in the you know most of these things or the M- maybe they start out with M2X and then we get the M2 in the spring with the MacBook Air update that's rumored who knows um, but I think the most likely outcome here is this is the M1X and it's based on the M1 cores from last year but more of them in larger chips and that the cores that are based on the A15 updates this year are possibly coming in future products. Uh, I think it's going to be M2 or M2X or something M2 derived. Uh, And I'm saying that for a couple of reasons. First of all, the M1 was, you know, roundabouts of this time last year. Uh, and second of all, the A what what is it A fifteen right in the in the new phones? There's yeah. so many of them, I can't keep them track keep track of them. So the A fifteen in the new phones, as we've said plenty of times, is not an earth shattering difference from you know the fourteen that preceded it. And what if the chip team, which we know has suffered some losses over the years, what if they were focused on these new chips for for these new computers? And so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is going to be a bespoke computer chip, you know, not just something that was derived from an iPad or an, I, or an iPhone chip. And, and it will be called M2 or M2X or something along those lines. Now, speaking of the A15, one thing that is the possibility here is like because the Macs are in such low volume compared to the phones um, it's possible that these unleashed ships whichever whatever cores they use might use the new whatever was it for N5P or whatever like the the new refined TSMC 5 nanometer process that Apple is using for the phone chips Um, and I say that just because the volume is so low like why not? Why not use if there's if there's a you know you can just carve out a tiny little sliver of spare capacity. And I think I just saw some rumor that Apple was uh, stepping down its uh, iPhone orders because of whatever you know. Like you don't need a, a much of a percentage miss on iPhone prediction to say oh and now we have access we have enough capacity to cover all the MacBook Pros because most people don't buy MacBook Pros they just they buy the cheap laptops right those are the big sellers and in the grand scheme of things the numbers are so small compared to iPhones that I really do hope that these chips are built on the new process because as we talked about last week part of what makes the a15 good is like oh you get a free five whatever it was you know five or six percent clock speed increase for no increase in power because we improved the process that's great that is a great example of unleashed oh we get speed for free and we don't burn any additional heat yes please put that in the macbook pros and then also (laughs) crank it up even higher so i really hope these use the new process just to you know goose them a little bit more regardless of what cores they use All right, Marco, you have in the show notes something very interesting. Marco's new Dropbox setup. Tell me about this. Yeah, this is a pleasant little surprise. Um, People a few weeks ago started recommending to me this new Dropbox client called Maestral. And it is an open source Dropbox app that runs on Macs and Linux. I've been using it myself. I uninstalled Dropbox from my Macs and... I've been using it on Mac and also on Linux on a server that I run that hosts my blog because it's a Dropbox-based blog engine. Um, and Dropbox forever ago, like they had a Linux CLI version of their client. It broke constantly, and my blog just hasn't worked for a while. <laughs> I've had to like cool. write things by rsync and SCP, and it's been a mess. And and uh, so anyway, so I I 
have I've had this running now for the last couple of weeks, and here's some reasons why you might want Maestro. So first of all, it is very very basic. It does not support some of Dropbox's more modern and you know broad or esoteric features that if you first got to Dropbox because it was a folder that syncs. <laughs> This does everything you want. <laughs> but if you if you came to Dropbox for its collaboration features and hey, let me suck all the pictures off of every device you plug in, like that kind of stuff, I don't think it does any of that stuff. But what's great about this, so first of all, Dropbox's native app, as far as I'm aware, is still not Apple Silicon compatible. Or not compatible rather, but it still runs in Rosetta. Like it still is not compiled for Apple Silicon. Again, I could be wrong. They're, they always say, oh, there's a beta. You go here. And, and then I've, I've tried that, and it's still, it's still always running Intel binaries. So the Dropbox app on your Mac today, if, if you have an M1 Mac, you're, already, you're running Rosetta. That might be the only Rosetta app you're still running, at least continuously. So that's overhead number one. Number two, Dropbox recently is an Electron app. So as we've discussed, that has a very large disk and memory footprint. To give you some idea, um, after both... After I had, like, I, I did my laptop first, and then I had Dropbox running on my desktop, and I restarted both machines. They were both fully synced, and their memory footprint, Dropbox was using 740 megs of RAM. My goodness. <laughs> and Maestro was using 118. Um, the Dropbox app, disk space-wise, was 421 megs. Maestro's app is 45 megs. So it's 10 times smaller on disk, and what is it, like five times smaller in RAM? It is very lightweight. And that, to me, for something that is running continuously uh, on, on my Mac, on all my Macs all the time, it feels like I have removed a, a small burden that was just constantly you know, pegging one CPU core for some reason. Or you know, just the, the amount of RAM that's using is inexcusable, right? So Maestro is great for that. Um, it is Apple Silicon native as well as Intel native. The Linux version I'm now running is also great. It was super easy to install. It's it's a Python-based thing, so you need to install some weird Python stuff. But, you know, it's it was in Modern Package Manager, so it's fine. Um, and it's configurable. You can like, tell it where to put the folder and everything. Um, the only things I really uh, found that were lacking about it, it didn't transfer over things like whether my shell scripts were executable. Um, and certain, whatever whatever extended attributes uh, on, on Macs, tell it like this this bundle is actually something that you shouldn't show the file extension on so like the like my, all my any logic file i have in there will have will show the dot logic x extension that normally shouldn't be shown um so it, there might be like some standard attribute stuff that it's not transferring properly uh, but as a like file transfer thing it's been fine it's it's, it's been fast um you know the shared folders update just fine um i haven't found i don't think it has any kind of like right-click for share link integration in Finder. So that is one downside. If you use that a lot, personally, I don't need that very often. When that happens, I can just go to the Dropbox website and just do, you know get the, tri- get the share link there if I really need it. So it's not, it, it isn't that big of a loss for me. Um, but it's been great. I feel like my computer, I mean, this is probably psychological, but I feel like my computers are faster and less <laughs> burdened. If nothing else, I trust this. It's a, it's a, it's a very simple open source app and Dropbox, with their own client software, I do not trust them at all. The, the Dropbox app has declined over the years to be both technically less sound and far less efficient. 
and also to be creepy and to try to take over more more and more parts of my system in weird ways. They try to play tricks to get you to give them your root password. They they play tricks with accessibility stuff. It's just it's weird what they do. And and we've talked before. Like I I really have been so turned off by what Dropbox has done with their with their client apps uh, in in recent years. And Maestro really removes most of that. You know, it, it, there's there's nothing bad about Maestro at all. It, it works well. The things it doesn't support are things I don't really use. And so it's great. I can recommend it. Looking at their Linux documentation, and they talk about raising the limits for uh, iNotify, which lets me know that they're using iNotify for their uh, change detection, right? Oh, by the way, if you if you uh, don't have iNotify installed, it won't install it for you. So install iNotify tools in your Linux box before, before you install Maestro. Learn that one the hard way. Uh, this is a problem I think we talked about years ago, or maybe I wrote about in my Mac OS 10 articles. Like, the problem you're faced with is, let me know when something happens with these files. And it's a lot of files. Um, and you could do it with polling, which is just, I'll just check constantly. Did anything change? Did anything change? Did anything change? And that is incredibly inefficient and destroys your battery. And you don't want to do that. Nobody likes polling. So you need some sign of OS facility that says, how can I tell when crap has changed in the file system without constantly polling? Uh, iNotify is one of the many features that does that on Linux. Um, I guess it's the one they chose here. It's fairly modern. And it basically let the kernel know because all IO, all local IO goes through the kernel. And so you can say, hey, kernel, uh, if anyone does anything to any of these, any files anywhere, you're going to be involved in it. And so just, just so you know, this set of files, tell me if anything happens with them. Call me back, you know, or whatever. And so now you don't have to pull. You just have to wait for anybody who does anything to the file system. Their code will eventually enter the kernel, and the kernel will say, oh, I've got a, if this is one of those files they're supposed to be watching, I'll then send that notification. So it's efficient. It's good, right? But as you can imagine, you can't tell the kernel, hey, kernel, if anything happens to any of these millions of files, let me know. Because now the kernel's like, oh, you know, I have to keep track of these millions of files. And every time I do anything to a file, I have to check if it's on this list of millions and it's a paint, you know. So there are limits in the kernel. There is not unlimited kernel memory, lots of fixed buffers or whatever. So that's why there is a limit in Linux that you can adjust to say, how many events am I allowed to have? How many, How long can the queue be? How many things can we watch? So on and so forth. So if you have a really big Dropbox, as this documentation says, you may need to adjust those. The reason I bring all this up is, on the Mac, there is no iModify. The Mac has its own multiple facilities for getting changes about files. One of them is FS Events, which is what Spotlight uses, and what I think Dropbox uses as well. There's also KQ, uh, which is Kernel Q, short for Kernel Q, which is similar to iNotify. There's at least one other facility that I'm not remembering the name of. Um, but on one of the sins of Dropbox on macOS is that historically, and I think still, it has done what is described as drinking from the FS events fire hose, which is it just kind of wants to say, I'm just just I'm going to hook into FS events. and I just want to see everything that happens in the in the, the sort of the, the least discriminating way possible. FS events isn't that granular. But if like instead of it saying instead of saying, just tell me what happens to the Dropbox folder, it's like, nope, I'm going to watch the fire hose. And so literally every single piece of file I.O. that happens in the entire system the Dropbox application, at least in the past, and I'm not sure about right now, in theory, had to watch at least go by and go, nope, not interested in that one. Nope, that's not for me. That's not in that Dropbox folder. Nope, not for me. Not for me. And that can be expensive, even though it's mostly just like seeing notifications go by, getting sent to it and dis- disregarding them. That's why you might, if you go into Activity Monitor, see like FS Events D or whatever the hell that process is called not burning your CPU, but using CPU. And you're like, Dropbox isn't doing anything. Why is it using any CPU? Oh, it's watching every single file system event go by. So I do wonder what this apparently Python-based thing uses on macOS 
to watch for events. It's probably not polling because that would be terrible. It could be using FS events in a more limited fashion. It could be using KQ for all I know, or it could be using that other one that I can't remember that, <laughs> that Mac OS has. And that, like, if you're not a programmer, you might not think about these things, but it's like, oh, I just want to fold to the sinks. Isn't that easy? This particular problem of, hey, let me know when something happens so I can do a thing is actually one of the harder problems because if you have millions of files in your Dropbox, your choices are like the naive choice of like, oh, I'll just check all the files. Well, checking a million files is incredibly expensive. And when you're done checking, you just got to start checking again. Because about the time it took you to check, tons of things could have happened. That's incredibly inefficient. So you have to use some kind of OS provided facility for checking for changes without polling. All of them have limitations and caveats and costs to using them. It's better than polling. It's better. It's not as costly as polling, but there is some cost. And so that is one of the main challenges of making a good magic folder that syncs across the network is finding a, a, you know, efficient way to check. And also you want it to be reliable. You don't want to miss events. If Marco, you know, put something in the folder and says like, and, and then, then he sees the little, you know, maestral thing sync, uh, and it's like, oh, great, it synced my change and it's done. But what if it didn't? What if it missed something because its event watching mechanism missed that event or it got dropped off a queue or whatever? Like, that is the hard problem here. And so Marco said he trusts this. And I think what he meant was, I trust it not to be creepy and do creepy things, but I'm not sure if I trust it to not accidentally miss a file. As, as awful as Dropbox is, it has so many users and it's such a big company, I have some confidence that if there's some systemic problem where they're missing updates or whatever, they'll notice before I do and hopefully get it fixed. Whereas this thing, if it's missing and or mangling files in some subtle way, I'm not sure. Any, I, I might be the first person to discover that and I don't want to be that person. Still, it's interesting, though. And uh, if I was running Dropbox on my machine, I would definitely be installing this right now. Uh, just very quickly, if you happen to be one of the 10 people who have Synologies um, that listen to this show, uh, what I've been doing... Oh, God, you really did get a fiber slap. Uh, is that just for Synology or is that FFmpeg, too? Did, no, what did we just, decide? just Synology. Oh, God, I cannot believe you actually got a fiber slap. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, if you happen to be one of the lucky people that own a Synology, then you can use Synology Drive in combination with Cloud Sync, I think uh, one of Synology's major problems is that they have terrible names for things and then rename them to similar things 85 times a year. But suffice to say, Synology Drive is like Dropbox, but it's run in your own little private cloud. And then you can have the Synology sync with your actual Dropbox such that your actual Dropbox is a subfolder within your Synology Drive. And that's what I've been doing for like two or three years now at the suggestion of a listener, and it's been working great. So uh, you can also take that approach where you don't have to have anything Dropbox at all happening directly on your computer. It's just pushed off to the Synology to handle it for you, which I also recommend. Uh, but this maestral thing is certainly a lot more accessible for most of us. So that's top tip. That Synology thing is probably using iNotify as well that tends to be them the most modern I, maybe iNotify is on mac os now maybe that's the one i can't remember someone suggested epoll but i think that's just linux so anyway it's not neither here nor there i'm not saying any one of these mechanisms is bad or good you, you know you should or shouldn't be using fs events you should or shouldn't be using iNotify or kq or epoll or whatever you just need one of them but all of them are tricky like it's not it's not straightforward to make sure that you are efficient and reliable and, you know, don't have weird corner cases or bugs and stuff like that. And in the magic folder that syncs, it's really easy to end up with corner cases. And this is kind of like the 
the thing that Merlin always harps on about, if you have a Dropbox with 100 files in it, you're fine no matter what. Like, it's fine. But if you have a Dropbox with 4 million files and, like, terabytes of data and you're using Selective Sync, suddenly the problem gets a lot harder and the odds of you encountering an issue go up a lot. Like, almost any of these systems we describe will work fine if you are a light user of folders that sync. But uh, I don't know how much you guys use, but I've definitely been pushing up against not being particularly light user of Dropbox. I don't like it. But that's just this is the world we live in. I keep putting more and more stuff in Dropbox, which I'm sure Dropbox loves because it's convenient to have it accessible everywhere. And because I still don't trust uh, iCloud Drive. So, yeah. I mean, for whatever it's worth, my Dropbox is a bit, it's just under seven gigs and it's 13,000 individual items. And because the reason why my entire blog CMS is hosted in my Dropbox and it, so it's, there's like, you know, at least one text file for every single post that's ever been on my site. And so it, it, there's a lot of like files and folders and images and stuff like that there. Um, but uh, I can say, you know, it this worked really well for 13,000 files that are 7 gigs. Um, one other thing that, that I forgot to point out that you might want to use Maestro is that the way it works, you know, the, the mechanism by which it works is it just using Dropbox's API. And as a result of that, Dropbox recently um, introduced changes to their plans and stuff to make more people buy the, the paid version that the free versions now have like a, a computer limit of how many computers they can be installed on before you have to upgrade to the paid plan space regardless. Um, and this does not count towards that limit because it's just an API client. I don't know how long Dropbox is going to let that go. <laughs> like they, they might have a problem with that. I don't know. But um, it's probably not going to be a big enough deal for them, for them to care. So... If you are running against the limit of, of your device count on a free Dropbox plan, uh, this might help you out there as well. So someone in the chat room posted some links to the source, and they have an unfortunately named file called polling.py, but it's in an FS event subdirectory. So it looks like they're using FS and some <laughs> Mac OS. Apparently they're using uh, this watchdog uh, uh, Python module that uses uh, iNotify on Linux. On Mac, it can use FS events or KQ. Um, and you can choose the implementation if you want, but I'm assuming based on the directory name that they're choosing FS events, which is honestly probably a reasonable solution. Although uh, on Mac OS, I feel like FS events is the most likely to continue working thing. And I know I say that uh, and then people are like, oh, well, what about that bug when you switch user accounts in the Mac and then all of a sudden Spotlight stopped working? Yeah, FS events does occasionally have issues or like, oh, I can't search my mail because FS events is hosted in some weird way. FS Events probably does not is not as reliable as uh, iNotify on Linux is, but given the choices available, I think FS Events was probably the right choice. Oh, also, um, I I had this on my desktop, which is a multi-user desktop. I have an account on this, and so does Tiff. We do we both do our podcasting from this, so she has Dropbox installed on her account so that she can like you know drop her podcast files into it to transmit to you know ongoing needs. And I have Maestro installed on both accounts. And it works great to sync both of them, you know, mine with my Dropbox, hers with her Dropbox. Never any problems there either. So I can say once again, here's another great thing about it. Works fine on multi-user macOS, which is not something I can say for lots of things, including watch unlock. <laughs> macOS itself barely works, like, but damn it, Maestro does. Let's do some Ask ATP. Derek Aldridge writes, you commented on a recent show that one of the hardest tasks in computer science is creating an accurate progress bar. I've watched a lot of bad progress bars over the years, so I believe that it must be really difficult to do well. But why is it so difficult? Uh, you know, it, I was thinking about this before we recorded, and the the answer I wanted to use was going to rely on, like, spinning platter hard drives, and that's obviously not something we need to worry about quite as often anymore. But 
I mean, look at if you were to download something from the internet, how, how do you know how long that's going to take? If it's going at a megabyte a second now, will it be a megabyte a second in, in 10 seconds? What if it goes from a megabyte a second to 100 megabytes a second to one-tenth of a megabyte per second? And there's no real way to predict that. And that's just one silly example of why, especially when you have any sort of in, input or output, you know, any sort of I.O., it gets really hard really quick, and you can't really reliably make predictions. But... I don't know, John, I'm assuming you put this in here. Do you have a more scientific answer than that? Yeah, this is the type of question that if you're a user of a thing, it seems mysterious and weird. Like, it seems like such a simple thing. I just want to, you know, see a bar and I want it to fill <laughs> a progress bar and I want it to fill in some reasonable uh, progression. Like, I don't I don't think people demand like you were uh, like uh, suggesting that like that it is that there are no jumps or stutters or whatever, but progress bars are so bad, like they're not even close to being correct, uh, that it seems like, you know, they'll spend an hour for the first two pixels and then jump to the end in two seconds. Like that's that's really far off and not, not a, a, something that you can blame on like variability of like uh, disk speed or, or internet connection, right? But the reason it seems weird to people is it just seems like it should be a straightforward thing. And the way... It doesn't seem weird to programmers because if you've ever had to program a progress bar, you immediately understand why they are crappy, right? Because what you're asked to do with a progress bar is essentially, like he said, know the future. And you can't know the future, right? And you like you don't know, like, not only can you not know the future about how things are going to go, very often you can't even know what it is you're going to be asked to do. Think of like an installer or something, Right. The installer knows roughly what it has to do, but if there's any step in the installer that involves like cleaning things up or preparing the way for a thing or whatever, you don't know what you're going to be faced with. Say you are upgrading something and you have to clean up an old version. You don't know where the old version is installed or if there are seven old versions that you have to get to. You don't even know how much work you have to do yet, right? So very often the first job to make a progress bar is like, well, if I wanted to make this progress bar reasonable at all, I need to essentially do a pre-flight and say, how much work is there for me to do? I know my job is uninstall X and install Y, but how big is X and where is X and and how fast is the disk that X is on? And is X even present at all? Are there 17 copies of X, right? I don't know any of these things. I don't even know what I have to do yet. And so you'd have to go out and wander and say, okay, should I take the time to like, or say, you know, your job is to like delete a bunch of stuff. Should I take the time like the finder seems to? and count how many files are in the trash first before I even start the progress <laughs> bar? Because otherwise, like, empty trash is a good example. Oh, you should know what you have to do. Why don't you just measure the speed of the disk and just do it? It's like, well, well, how many files are in the trash? Okay, counting the files in the trash can be really fast, or you might have literally 4 million files in the trash. Counting 4 million files takes a non-zero amount of time. Now, how do you show the progress bar for counting 4 million files? You probably don't because you don't know how many you're counting. So how can you put up a progress bar? You have to count before you can even know how to put the progress bar in. And this cycle just repeats and it's just a, a fractal itself. It's just a nested thing within thing. You don't even know what you have to do, let alone how long it will take to do it. Now try making a progress bar. Like the boot process of a computer is similar, which is why for various, various times in the history of macOS, macOS has essentially had a progress bar that's just like, look, don't pay any attention to what we're actually doing during the boot. Just show a progress bar that, that lasts roughly the length of time the last boot process lasted. And if we get close to the end and we're not done yet, just make it slow down. Like it's totally fake. Like they don't even try because what you will find if you try to program this is 
pre-flight is often the most expensive thing you're going to do. And it's better not to pre-fly. And it's like, don't prepare to go, just go. Don't prepare to move out, just move out from space balls or whatever, right? And that's often what they do. They say, I'm not going to try to prepare. Because I know if I have to count up all the things or meticulously figure out the list of things that I have to do, that might take longer than doing the thing. And no one wants to wait twice as long so the progress bar can be slightly more accurate. Just start going and just start filling the progress bar. And, you know, if there are five steps in this installation progress, then have the progress bar. I've done step one, I've done step two, and step. it doesn't matter if step three takes two hours and step one and two take 30 seconds. This is just how we decided to do it. You know why? Because we can't pre-flight this crap. Uh, and, you know, so it's, it is understandable as soon as you try to implement it. But from a user's perspective, it's like, doesn't the computer know what it's doing or how long it's going to take? And the answer is no. The computer doesn't know because humans don't know because it's unknowable. And figuring it out, knowing it, is often one of the most expensive things you can do and just slows everything down. Nobody wants that. So that's why I don't use empty trash in the finder. I use RM minus RF from the command line because RM minus RF does not pre-flight that crap. <laughs> the most john thing i've ever heard i would also add um you know other reasons that that progress bars are often so bad um you know there's a lot of these days network involvement in the things that we are waiting on progress bars for and not only are networks you know potentially fickle and unreliable you know things might fail in the middle and have to be retried bits of data might not make it and have to be resent Um, things might time out but also when you're operating over the network you're dealing with you know, two unreliable conditions, your end of the network, where you might be like moving with a cellular connection, (laughs) or even just moving throughout your house on, you know, some weird Wi Fi setup, or, you know, somebody might turn a microwave on next door and blast out the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. And then that makes all your devices like reconnect and (laughs) have problems. So there's, you know, you have your own unreliable network, and then you have whatever's going on between you and whatever server you're talking to. And then that server could be could have like spiky performance depending on the load that it's bearing at the time um so there's all sorts of unreliability there um and then finally i would add to provide a progress report back to the user is more code like you have to like in for most operations that you would write as a programmer that you might want to display a progress bar for uh many of those operations in order to make them get progress updates and display them to the user that's significantly more code and sometimes more complicated code than just like in the code just saying like all right fetch this file now write it out here and then fetch this file then write it out here like to to do that while also providing progress on that transaction or on on whatever operation you're doing is more work and more complexity and for most things that's not worth it unless something's going to take you know a reasonably long time every time um, and so most programmers just kind of skip that part and just say, all right, write the file here and tell me when you're done. And that's it. Um, so that's those, those are some of the many reasons why this is hard. Some uh, a common programming practice, which I think is a pretty good one, is like do a thing and then basically say, if I start doing a thing and it turns out it's taking more than X seconds, now, now go and throw up a progress bar, which I think is usually a good UI because if it happens instantly, very often, uh, especially in the olden days, but maybe less so now, it would take more time to instantiate, create, and display the window with the progress bar in it than it would do to to do the actual thing. So lots of still to this day, lots of applications, lots of I think good Mac applications will just try to do a thing when you ask, and only after 1.7 seconds elapses or whatever their timeout is, they'll say uh, this is obviously going to take more than 1.7 seconds. So throw up a window, put a progress bar in it, or whatever. 
And I think that's right. Like it's kind of once you pass that threshold of this happens instantly, you need to give some kind of feedback. But if you tried to throw the progress bar every time, it could be like visual noise. If the operation is so fast that by the time the progress bar is drawn on the screen, it just zips to 100% and disappears. That's wasting everybody's time and it's flashing crap on the screen. Uh, one more question in the chat room about this was uh, in the specific case of counting up files. Like, why doesn't every directory just keep track of how many files are in it and so on up the tree so that you would never need to count files? You would just ask the top level directory, hey, how many files are under you? Uh, sounds like it makes a lot of sense, again, until you try implementing a file system. That's actually pretty hard to do because that would mean that every time something adds or removes a file, everyone's fighting over updating the count of files. And you really need that not to get out of sync because if it's out of sync, it's useless to you. You need it to be in sync all the time, but you don't want to pay the contention overhead for it. That said, APFS, as we have discussed on past shows many years ago, has this feature ostensibly where it does have a way to keep track on a per directory basis how many files are in it. I remember talking about when we were, this feature was rolling out, it's like, this will be great because now when we go to the storage screen on iOS, it won't take a year and a day to show us what's using all the storage because it, it won't have to like crawl the whole file system. It'll just know this. I don't know what happened to that feature. Um, <laughs> I'm not, Mac OS doesn't seem to use it. I think it's still there. Maybe, I mean, iOS's storage screen also is just as slow as it ever was. Maybe for other reasons. I think that is still a feature of APFS. Like part of, you know, part of the, the great features of that is like, we found a way to do this that doesn't cause huge amounts of contention and it actually has adequate performance. So we're going to. And what that means is you can do this fast, you know, fast directory file count thing. That I, I, think, I think it's there. I think the APIs are still for it. Probably someone will find it and send it to us and we'll have it in the show notes next week or whatever. But the the bottom line is, if the OSs and the software don't use it, if like the common APIs don't use it, it doesn't really matter that feature is good. So if that feature does exist and is reliable, I really hope more parts of Mac OS and iOS start using it. If it's not reliable, please continue not to use it, <laughs> right? Because it's really important for the answer to the question of how many files in this directory to be accurate. Uh, not so much for the emptying the trash finder, just just empty it, please. <laughs> All right. Tom Jacob writes, what's a good car blog to read to keep up with the latest in car technology, preferably one that plays nice with my favorite RSS reader, NetNewsWire? I don't really read any, to be honest with you. I just get my news through, you know, people uh, in, in Slacks or through Twitter. I'm assuming, John, that you have some good answers for this, though. So tell me, please. Really, we've answered this one a couple of times that people ask every few years. Like, I'm still a old fuddy-duddy. I still get Car and Driver magazine on paper, and I read it on paper, and I like it. Um, Car and Driver does have a website, and they do have an RSS feed, but it's not good. <laughs> it's not a good RSS feed. Uh, it Like, it has, like, the title and then, like, not even a description, but it's got the title and maybe a few words and then a link to the article. So technically, it works with NetNewsWire. Um but yeah, if you're looking for a car magazine, uh, I like Car and Driver. Um, Jalopnik is another website that I often find myself going to, but honestly, I don't know enough about the website to recommend it specifically. I just do know that on Twitter, kind of like KCIC links there occasionally, and I go and read them. But in terms of uh, the writing about cars that I can relate to that I think is not entirely scummy and slightly less, well, anyway, I don't know. Anyway, Car and Driver, that's my suggestion. They have a website. Check it out. I used to read Autoblog years and years and years ago and then mostly gave up on it. And if I were to choose one, I'd probably choose Jalopnik. But uh, but I don't really read anything with regularity. I do watch a couple of YouTube channels. I've given up on Doug DeMiro. Um, I just found that I didn't really like his style anymore. 
Um, what is it? Straight Pipes is pretty good. Uh, Savage Geese is good. I personally really like uh, regular car reviews. I know that the uh, that is a very polarizing channel, and not everyone will like it, but I really, really enjoy it. Um, those are three off the top of my head that I can think of. Uh, but I don't know, John, do you have any that you would like to add? I know you do a lot of, there's a lot of rebuild ones that you enjoy, but... Um, yeah, um, uh, Alex, Alex on Autos is... Uh, <laughs> less objectionable let's say than even savage geese i would say i enjoy savage geese as well but their their opinions don't always match up with mine but alex on auto is very sort of straightforward it's kind of what i think of as like a spiritual successor to uh motor uh yeah motor week going smells maryland 21117 yeah that's motor week is it's still, still on. on it's still yeah, on they're still doing it but if you wanted to see like a youtube eyesed version of that alex on autos he does very thorough very long explorations of cars he's got his own weird opinions as well but it's less about him and his personality and i think his format is more like motor week it's just like look we're gonna we're gonna sit in all the seats we're gonna look at all the things and it's you know anyway doug demiro is definitely a thing very often i just go on there to see the cars but yeah he's definitely got a shtick um 539 i can never remember the stupid channel what's the 539 rest m539 restorations yeah. Oh, that's yeah. my guy. Yep. Um, that's that's my the the one and only car rebuilding channel that I endorse. It's the it's the guy. I think he's like, is he Croatian or Slovenian or something? But he lives in Germany. Uh, M five thirty nine is because he likes the uh, what's the E thirty nine M five. Yeah, the E thirty nine M five is his big car. He's got a bunch of them, but he rebuilds old BMWs. He is amazing and great, and I love all his rebuilding. And I know so much about everything that will fail on BMWs now. <laughs> which is basically everything many things oh, bmws from the 80s and 90s that is <laughs> marco i know you're uh going to have a lot of answers for this so please do share <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> yeah i don't i have never read a car blog on a regular basis yeah i think like what what keeps me out of needing to be in that world or wanting to be in that world is like i i love my electric vehicle transition so much I don't really care about what what goes on in the non-electric world because I, I care a lot about the electric vehicle options out there. But the problem is most of the electric vehicle coverage out there is about Tesla. And even though I love my Tesla car to drive, the last thing I want to do is follow Tesla news and discussions. <laughs> that's, that's a that's a garbage fire. So I don't, I don't want to go anywhere near that. And so there's just not much for me there most of the time. Of course. All right, and moving right along, let's see what we've got next. Sean Cohen writes, hey, question for John. He always talks about his old hardware going up into the attic. How often does he power anything on, check check that it worked, etc.? I've had my own experiences re- recapping classic Mac hardware, reflowing solder joints, refreshing heat sinks, and so on. Does John actually maintain all of his hardware? Smiley face. Apparently, we're, this is, uh, we're doing all repeat questions this week. Uh, yeah, this is another one we answer every few years. It's time for it to come up again. We have to resolder the question. Yeah. <laughs> the answer to the question is no, I absolutely do not maintain it. Things are in the attic. Uh, surely some huge percentage of it just all have blown capacitors and are leaking all over the place. Um, occasionally, I do think, take things out and turn them on and test them. And so far, I've been lucky, but I do absolutely nothing to maintain them other than trying to do the minimum possible climate control to my attic where they are. Cause it is a finished space, but it is not heated or cooled other than through it by windows and my efforts. So yeah, everything up there is just slowly rotting. And when I finally move out of this place or deal with that stuff, it's going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much to our sponsors this week, Mac Weldon hover and revenue cat. 
And thank you to our members who support us directly. You can join atp.fm slash join. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L. ISS, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. I've been really excited for this. John, what's up with your winter hats? I I have a uh, I have a winter hat. Uh, I don't know where it came from. It might have been my dad's. Uh, it is uh, <laughs> Oh my gosh, John. A lot of things in my life I feel like I own, I don't know where they came from, and they also might have been my dad's, but they're just they're old and I don't remember. Uh, it's what I used to call a chicken hat. Do you know what kind of hat I'm talking about? No. No. Uh, if you look at it from the side, it's kind of like uh um Let's see. It's got angled sides and a flat top, right? What? So it's like, think, think of a house. What are you talking about? Think of a house, right? It's a square with a triangle on top of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cut off the tip of the triangle on top. That shape you've got now, that's the shape of the hat. And when you, and when you, and when you put it on, and when you put it on, if you look at someone on the side, you will see that shape. Wait, is, so it, does it have a rigid shape, or is that just like cloth that drapes over your head? It is cloth, but that's the shape the cloth is. You've probably seen this hat. Like, I, don't I don't feel I don't like, like I've ever seen this. I'm going to need yeah, a picture. Right. Yeah, yeah, we are definitely going to need a picture. <laughs> I, have, I, mean, I have to Google for winter. He's not actually called a chicken hat, so I have to just Google winter hat <laughs> and try to find... Winter hat uh, that looks like a house. I hear that if you just type something into Google and not think about yeah, it. Yeah, I should try that. Winter hat... <laughs> This is great program. It doesn't look like it's a shape like it's shaped like a house. No, the chat room not. is going through actual pictures of chicken hats, and it's probably not yeah, what you were. I know. I know if I type chicken hat, it is not going to. How old would you say if if you if you might have gotten this hat from your dad? How old do you think your current hat is? I don't know how time works. Maybe twenty years, twenty five. And it, you have and are still wearing a twenty, possibly twenty year old winter hat. All right. Well, so anyway, the, the the shape is not that important. I'm just trying to describe the current hat that I have. You'll see why in a second, right? So this is this is the type of hat it is. I never really liked this kind of hat. I associated with my dad because he used to wear a chicken hat when we skied. Again, it's not called a chicken hat, um, or maybe a rooster hat or whatever. But anyway, this. So somehow I came into possession of this green hat, and it's made of like kind of a felty type, uh, not fleece, but kind of fleecy turtle furry type material. And given that it's 25 years old and has not pilled, I'm going to say it's very resistant to pilling because <laughs> I don't I don't know how it hasn't pilled, but it hasn't. But here is the key point about this hat. Uh, if I was to give you this hat and you were to like put it between your fingers and squeeze it, it it's, like, it's like an inch thick, like with the two halves of the hat together. An inch thick and squishy. It is a thick hat. No, we're not starting that again. <laughs> it, like, it is not... It, you can't see through it. It doesn't have a mesh that you can see through. Again, it's like fleecy type of material. 
if I, th- I think if you shoved it up to your face and tried to blow through it, no air would come out the other side. <laughs> it is extremely thick, <laughs> which means that it's warm. Uh, and I'm cold all the time, so I want a warm hat. I'm going to pull this over my head, down over my ears, and I want it to insulate them from the cold. So thickness is a super duper important feature. And, it, you know, I've had this hat for years. I'm like, you know, I should it's, I, I should try to find a, again, I'm not trying to replace it. I should try to find a backup for this hat, right? <laughs> so I started looking around for winter hats a few years ago. Uh, and every single hat I found is like the thickness of my sock. And pretty much as, as like wind and like weatherproof. It's like, I can see through this hat. Like I can literally see sunlight through this hat. When I <laughs> hold it up to the light in the store, I'm going to put this on my head. It's so thin. It's like paper thin and you know like i'm like that's not going to be warm i need something that is thick and thick is thick and squishy is nice too like it's comfortable <laughs> it's comfy to do that i don't want a skin thin thing um and i know i'm not in the majority most people don't want a thick hat because then their head gets all sweaty and it's gross like i get that i understand why this is not the popular hat but somehow somewhere someone i think related to i think we got this hat from rei maybe because i did a lot of investigating to try to find this hat at one point made thick hats uh, and so now I've been on this multi-year in the background type of thing where if I'm ever in a store and they have winter hats, I go over to them and I squeeze them all and go, nope, thin, 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 thin. <laughs> nope, nobody makes a thick hat. And I just move on. And I bought a bunch of additional hats like beanies and knit hats and all this other stuff and like buying them from Amazon based on reports of how thick they might be. And they just were all incredibly thin. I went to L.L. Bean. I've been to all the various stores in person. Not like I'm, I'm hunting with this hat because I still have my other hat, but now I'm living in fear of losing it because if I lose this hat, like, that's it. I can never buy a winter hat again. And I'm not even picking about style. I don't need it to be a chicken hat. I don't need anything about it. I'm like, I just need it to be a thick hat. And there is literally nothing. And so it's very disappointing to me. So first of all, I'm going to guess that this hat is somehow magic, that it is going to be bound to you forever and that you cannot lose it because I don't know anybody who could keep a winter hat or any winter clothing item that is, you know, a hat or glove category and not lose it for 20 years. Like, because these things rarely wear out. I think they get lost long before that. So the fact that you've had this for possibly up to 20 years and you haven't lost it yet I think you're good on that. I don't think you're going to lose it. I mean, I don't tend to lose things, but, you know, it could. I think maybe a part of what precipitated this is like, you know, like if it's going to get lost, it's going to get lost essentially in the house. It's like, well, it's getting cold again. Let me go find my winter hat. And you realize I don't know where in the house the winter hat is. And then you've got too much crap in your house and you can't find it. So I think that is the scenario that prompted me to say I should really have a backup. I did eventually find it and I'm pretty sure I know where it is now. I haven't taken it out yet because obviously it's still like 70 degrees here and I don't need a winter hat. Um, but you, you know, you're right that I'm not the type of person who loses things often. So it's not an imminent danger, but after 20 plus years, I feel like I'm pressing my luck. So I would say also, um, the, the two areas you might want to look at are number one, uh, wool area. I like the smart wool brand for, for both hats and gloves. Uh, they're not super thick, but they are warmer than you expect because they do. I, I, I assume you're using merino or some some kind of like nice wool because I usually get itchy with most wool and I don't with that. I don't. This is not wool, and I don't want wool. Well, but I'm saying like that's that's an option for you know 
higher weight to thickness ratio. Um, another thing to consider is if you look at the fleece category of hats, there's many of them that tends to be warmer also because it is substantially less breathable than these kind of looser knits that you tend to see like on the, the on the most common, like, you know, winter beanies or whatever, whatever they're called. The part that has like, you know, they pulled down, you fold up the little flap. You, usually like the fleece versions of them are significantly warmer. So I don't know if you're going to find one that is the thickness that you want, but you can probably achieve similar warmth with some different fabric choices. Yeah, I mean, I just posted in the chat, I found the the shape of the hat. It's the wrong material, the wrong color, everything about it is wrong, but this is the shape. And I found it by searching for 80s wool, 80s ski hat, and it came up with 80s wool ski hat. So maybe it totally was an 80s thing. So anyway, look in the chat. Do you see that shape? Yeah, Yeah, I've seen this before. And the whole idea is that like your nose would be facing either the left or the right. Right. That's how you put it on. You don't put it on sideways. Right. And this is, you know, this is totally wrong because this is like a knit hat, you know, whatever. So Um, I was going to say, if only you knew someone perhaps extremely well that knits constantly, maybe you could make a custom bespoke request. You know, you know, I don't want knit because knit is just full of holes. Yeah. (laughs) That's the whole thing. This, by the way, is this is the more extreme chicken hat. This is not the shape of my hat. I just put it in the chat. Um, But this is the more extreme chicken hat. And now you can see why it, it would be called a chicken hat. I guess, yeah. yeah. More like a rooster or whatever. I, I don't know what it, this is my name for it, but like this, this is more exaggerated. You can see how it's got little things that poke out of it, but it's still basically a triangle. The the first one I sent you is more like the the shape of my hat. We're we're gonna um, need a picture of you in the hat. I'm sure you've seen me in this hat. I, I, you probably have seen me in this hat. It's very nondescript. It is like dark green, and that it's all there is to it. There is no texturing or coloring or anything like that. It's just a dark green hat. And I have hundreds of pictures of me in it, I'm sure, because it's literally the only hat I ever wear in the winter. Good. Um, Find one, and we'll make it the uh, show, the chapter art for this chapter, if you can get it to me by tomorrow uh, morning. <laughs> um, my, by the way, this is not my ski hat. When I went skiing, what I would wear, I went through a series of hats for skiing, but I eventually settled on a hat that looks like, I mean, this is not really what it looks like, but I will uh, send this to you. Uh, my ski hat. Not stylish, but it is basically has it has a baseball brim and ear flaps. It lo- it's this shape that I just put in the chat. Do you see that? Yeah. Um, and that I use because the brim serves a purpose of stopping falling snow and s- sun shielding. And my ski goggles go under that. The ear flaps keep my ears warm. And, and my ski hat, which I still have somewhere, even though I haven't been seeing in ages, like it's actually insulated like a winter jacket. Like it's made like a winter jacket where it's like, you know, ripstop nylon with insulation between it on all the different layers. And underneath this hat, I would wear a fleece headband. So it's fleece headband, ski hat, goggles over the hat to hold the hat to your head. This was the days before anyone wore helmets. I probably should have been because I was, it's amazing that I'm alive. But, uh, <laughs> but that's my ski hat. Um, and I still have that somewhere. So have you considered a multi-hat approach? Mm, how would that oh taking multiple thin hats and just shoving them on top of each other then that'd be a mess like i'm trying to avoid the whole thing of like i don't want anything that's itchy i don't want anything that's weird like the the beauty of the big thick hat is just you just pull it over your head and it slides right on and it goes off and it's it's soft and it's squishy and it's warm and it blocks the wind and it has no moving parts like it is not there are no drawstrings there's no seams that are all like i'm sure there are somewhere but there's no sort of visible seams or other things that get in the way it's just a green chicken hat 